Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Psychological factors influence or are associated with physical function, pain and healthcare costs for people with musculoskeletal pain conditions. And psychological distress is fairly common in people who come into the clinic seeking care for their musculoskeletal health. You've probably read clinical practice guidelines that tell you to screen for so-called yellow flags, but how do you approach screening? My guest today is a physical therapist and health services researcher who cares deeply about improving how people experience the healthcare system and the outcomes that they achieve after receiving quality musculoskeletal rehabilitation care. His research focuses on developing tools that evaluate psychological distress and behavioural needs in clinical practice, so he's absolutely the perfect person to walk us through screening for yellow flags. Dr Trevor Lentz is an Associate Professor in the Department of Orthopaedic Surgery at Duke University, and he's a member of the Duke Clinical Research Institute. Today, Trevor shares with us a practical three-step framework on how to screen for yellow flags and that important next step, what to do with the information. Welcome to JOSPT Insights, Dr. Trevor Lentz. Trevor, today we're talking about psychological factors and how they might feature in how we as clinicians deliver musculoskeletal rehabilitation care for people who have pain. And I'm sure most of our listeners are going to be familiar with the term yellow flag, and they'll probably have their own idea of what a yellow flag means to them. But Trevor, when you talk about yellow flags, what do you mean? What is a yellow flag? Yeah. So the way that I tend to define yellow flags are psychological risk factors for prolonged disability or pain or failure to return to work, uh, usually as a consequence of some type of musculoskeletal condition or, or symptoms. There's a distinction between psychiatric symptoms and normal but unhelpful factors like maladaptive appraisals of pain, such as like feeling that the pain can't be controlled or it's an indication that something is seriously wrong with the body. Some of these unhelpful factors are also emotional responses like worries or fear, anxiety, and then also different types of pain behaviors like avoidance beliefs. These are things that we commonly see in practice, but they're not commonly addressed. So I I do make a bit of a distinction between yellow flags as these things that we, I think we can address within the context of physical therapy. And then some of the more psychiatric symptoms, which are also considered orange flags, maybe a a step between yellow and, and the more significant red flags that require immediate referral. Those psychiatric symptoms, those orange flags tend to be more things like clinical depression, personality disorders, certainly things that are outside of our scope of practice for managing. Yeah, and I think it's an important distinction because it doesn't mean that people are going to not turn up in the clinic and you won't recognise those, perhaps a clinical depression diagnosis or someone might disclose a mental health diagnosis to you. And as a clinician, I think sometimes that can feel a bit intimidating because it's like, how do I deal with that? How do I factor that into the planning that I'm doing around musculoskeletal healthcare? But I think what I'm hearing you say is that it doesn't have to be the thing that you feel like I've got to take care of, but it's about recognizing what these factors are and then having a plan of how you're going to deal with them or perhaps thinking about how they might influence the plan that you and the patient put together. 
Yeah, and that, that's absolutely correct. And I think, you know, most of the time when people think about yellow flags, it may be along the lines of the psychiatric factors. And, and oftentimes the things that are certainly within our scope are those things that maybe aren't quite as obvious. That's when some of the more standardized and systematic approaches to screening can be really helpful is to identify some of those factors, modifiable. We know that we can address those. And maybe we as healthcare providers feel a little bit more comfortable addressing some of those things as opposed to depression, anxiety, personality disorders that are are certainly outside of our scope. And you've got a great three-step framework in your paper in the September 2021 issue of JOSPT that we're really going to dive into today. And I want to point people to that paper right off the bat, because I think it's a really great practical way of thinking about screening for yellow flags and then what you do with that information. So you mentioned screening for yellow flags, Trevor. I know there's a bit of debate about whether we should or we shouldn't screen for yellow flags. So why do you say that it's important? Well, I think the reason that it's important is because the literature really supports the influence of these modifiable yellow flags on treatment outcomes for a variety of different musculoskeletal conditions. They can aid in prognosis, and and as a result, they can help in our treatment planning. When you look at some of these studies that compare psychological factors, yellow flags, with some of the more traditional impairment-based factors like strength, range, motion, flexibility, uh, and they put these things in a model to predict outcomes, we see that the yellow flags oftentimes are just as strong, if not stronger, predictors of outcomes as the impairments that we most typically address in physical therapy. And what I think it tells me is that we really need to be paying much closer attention to these things because we, we know that they can influence those outcomes. And and a lot of the work that's out there now has shown that these characteristics are really prevalent. This isn't something that happens in a very small proportion of the population. But actually, a lot of the folks that we see in physical therapy, particularly those with chronic pain, these characteristics are are very prevalent. And it's something that, in my opinion, I don't think that we should be overlooking. Kind of taking a step back, if it's our intent to become preferred first contact providers for orthopedic and musculoskeletal conditions, then we really need to have a plan to comprehensively assess risk factors and needs as it relates to outcomes. And and that would include psychological and behavioral factors that are contributing to disability. So I I feel like these are really some important reasons why screening generally is important and why we need to consider the need to take a whole person approach. Yeah. And I guess that dovetails nicely with the biopsychosocial model of care that I think everyone's going to be really familiar with and everyone's trying to practice. What I'm hearing you say is that if we're really truly practicing within that biopsychosocial model, then there's going to be factors for some patients that are not simply biological factors, but that also we need, we've got to recognize. Now, Trevor, I guess the flip side to this with screening is the risk of overdiagnosis. And we've heard this a lot with general medical practice, and I think it's becoming more recognized in musculoskeletal healthcare. So where do we find that balance overdiagnosis, overtreatment, and how it relates to the screening that we're talking about here. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really good point because that's some of the biggest pushback that that I get and, and that our group gets, you know, because we are promoting screening. And so I think that there are really a couple of considerations when we, when we look at pros and cons to screening. I think that there's the practical reasons that screening may not always be appropriate. And I think the biggest one is really if physical therapists aren't trained to assess or evaluate or intervene 
on these these characteristics, then then what exactly is the benefit of of looking into them or screening for them? I don't think that's necessarily a reason to avoid developing those skills, but there's a real legitimate concern that if we identify these needs, then we need to do something about them. And if we don't have a workforce that is is skilled in doing that, then potentially aren't providing the type of care that we should. There are also a lot of unanswered questions. And I think this this kind of gets at your question about overuse and that we don't understand exactly at the moment who benefits from these psychologically informed practices, what exactly should be delivered, how much is too much, how much is too little. And so there certainly is the concern there that if you aren't exactly sure who's going to benefit, but we're going to err on the side of making sure that we address these characteristics, that we could be delivering care to people that aren't necessarily going to benefit from it. And, and that has real consequences in terms of cost of care and the amount of time that we're dedicating to that for potentially very little benefit. I know that that, at least in the U.S., is certainly a, a big consideration. And another reason that a lot of physical therapists are reluctant to screen and intervene is because there's really no financial incentives to do so. And we hate to say it, but if there's adverse reimbursement practices for, for the type of care that we're providing, such that it doesn't reimburse or it doesn't pay us for providing that level of care, it's not sustainable. And so these are some of the reasons that I think we tend to see a little bit of pushback. There's also philosophical differences. And there are a, a number of physical therapists that I've talked to that feel like it's well outside of our scope of practice to deliver care in this, this psychologically informed way. We are physical therapists and we focus on a lot of the physical manifestations of musculoskeletal concerns. And so trying to deliver care that is psychological in nature is outside of our scope of practice. I, I would say that, you know, assessing psychiatric conditions and, and addressing those certainly as well with well outside of our scope of care. I don't know that assessing psychological needs or behavioral needs is outside of our scope of care. And I, I think whether we recognize it or not, a lot of the nonspecific effects that we have in, as physical therapists often have psychological and behavioral inputs. And so we're really already doing a lot of this stuff. But the goal here is really to make it more intentional, make it more targeted and organized in an effort to increase its effect until we have more research to really help us understand who's going to benefit, how much is too much. There's probably always going to be that concern about overutilization and certainly something that we need to be cautious of when it comes to deciding who we screen. I think you're right. And I'm really grateful for you laying out in a really even-handed way the challenges on both sides. And, and I think it is a constant tension and people are going to have different approaches depending on sort of the resources that they've got available, what community they're working within, where they can refer people, whether they're working as a solo practitioner in a very remote area versus a place where you've got a, a very well-developed and easy to access multidisciplinary team around you. So it's going to differ for different people. Trevor, let's move on. Let's talk about the screening itself. What are your key tips for people who are going back into the clinic tomorrow? How would you suggest or recommend that they approach screening for yellow flags? What tool or tools should they use? Who should they screen? This is a, a big shift in thinking and certainly practice for many people. And like any other learning activity or new skill, it takes a lot of time to become familiar with it and develop competencies. I think the first question that you would want to ask yourself is, what are my objectives? Why am I doing this? And what patient population do I want to target? So some of the suggestions that I have are to start with a very defined patient population and try it out for a week. 
This way, what you're able to do is understand what types of changes to the clinical workflow may need to take place to, to do this at a much larger scale. And by focusing on a specific patient population, you're not looking at every single patient that comes through the door, but maybe one that you have a particular interest in. It really gives you an opportunity to, to trial this approach for a little bit of time. And then just look at your distribution of scores. Look to see what these screening tools are telling you. Do they match with what you sense from the patient? This is one of the things that surprised me the most when I started to evaluate this in clinical practice was that I would identify some of these yellow flags in patients that just in talking with them and going through their initial evaluation, I may not have suspected that they have significant issues with fear avoidance beliefs or catastrophizing, or they may even be depressed or anxious. And so by administering some of these standardized screening tools, you pick up on things that you may not otherwise see. I I think one of the other surprising things for me was just how prevalent some of these characteristics are. And by doing a bit of a trial of the screening program for yourself, it may give you a sense or give you a better sense of whether this is something that's sustainable in your practice and whether it adds information to the information you're already gathering through your subjective exam. If you have some of these these results and they maybe indicate yellow flags, then what you can do is try using these results to start a conversation with your patient. And I'll, I'll reference the paper that, Claire, you mentioned earlier on in the podcast We'll put it into the show notes as well so people can find it easily. Yeah, there's there's some language that we found to be really helpful in talking with patients about yellow flags and helping to initiate conversations about this. Because in our own experience, what we find is that, you know, people with, with pain and particularly if they have some of these psychological and behavioral needs, they want to talk to you about it. And they, they want to know that their healthcare provider is interested in this part of their life and how pain influences them. I, I think what a lot of you may find is that once you start to have some of these discussions and use these tools as a way to spark these discussions, that they can be really meaningful and add a lot to your, your clinical encounter. Another suggestion is you may want to wait for the second or third visit to do the screen. We do advocate for early screening, but there is some benefit to waiting a little bit of time, particularly if you're just starting out with screening, because what that does is it gives you some time to develop a little bit of rapport. Sometimes asking these psychologically based questions can be a little off-putting to some patient. If they've just met you, they don't understand why you're asking these things. Uh, Giving yourself a little bit of time to develop rapport may actually help to increase the value of that screening and increase the depth of that conversation that you can have with your patient. And then the final suggestion here is really to monitor. You can use these screening tools to just see how factors change over time and for who. And by considering how this information changed, it may also give you some information on when these may be most appropriate. The second question you had was uh, was about screening tools. And, and this is an area that admittedly I'm a little biased in because I, I have done some work in trying to develop tools that are easy for physical therapists to use in clinical practice. But I think the main thing is that the tool has to be easy to administer. It has to be easy for you to interpret, and it has to be useful for your own clinical practice. So there are legacy measures out there. There are common psychological measures that have been around for many years. The Tampa Scale for Kinesiophobia, Pain Catastrophizing Scale, PHQ-9 are some common ones that are used for fear avoidance beliefs and catastrophizing and depression, respectively. Those are nice because there's a lot of information out there on those tools. Uh, And for some of them, there are cutoff scores that can be used for interpretation in clinical practice. Some of the drawbacks of those tools is they are unidimensional, meaning that they measure one particular aspect of psychological distress or psychological functioning. 
we know from the literature is that oftentimes there are multiple characteristics that are important to consider when you're looking at somebody's overall level of distress or yellow flags. And so there are some multidimensional tools out there that we've tried to develop to address some of this limitation and also make it easy to administer and practice. The Osprey Yellow Flag tool, which was published in JOSPT, is one of those. It's not really so much a questionnaire as it is a calculator to very quickly estimate what patients would score on 11 different psychological questionnaires, 11 different legacy measures for things like pain, anxiety, and pain self-efficacy and fear avoidance beliefs, depression, and general anxiety. And so that's really nice because you can get a lot of information. There's, it's a 10-item tool, and you can use a calculator that's on the Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapy website to, to score that tool. It gives you a lot of information. Some of the newer tools that we developed just recently published earlier this year are called the SPARE tools. They were developed using item response theory. The way that these were designed was really to look at broader psychological constructs of fear avoidance, negative pain coping, and negative mood. Because what we were finding was that those three different psychological domains tend to probably tell us the most information about how somebody is going to do. So those questionnaires are four items each. So you have a four-item questionnaire for fear avoidance, for negative pain coping, and negative mood. So 12 total. And it gives you a really nice sense of an overall psychological distress. And what you can consider is that if you have a particular interest in fear avoidance beliefs, you can administer a four-item tool. And maybe that's where you start off with and you see what that tool tells you. And then if you find that that's beneficial, then consider adding in some of those other tools. So Trevor, let me put you on the spot. Which tool do you like? So the, uh, the the spare tools being relatively new, I think those are ones that I have not had a, an extensive amount of time to use in practice, but I think that they probably hold the greatest promise largely because of their brevity and the fact that they were developed using item response theory, which would make them really ideal for screening. I'll say the one that I have probably have the most experience with is Ospro. We use that here at, at Duke University, and we've been able to use that tool to develop clinical practice pathways that match how people score on the tool. So for people that have very high levels of psychological distress on the tool, we have matched pathways to try to address those. Again, I'm biased, but those are the two that I'm, I have the most familiarity with. And I think the next kind of step in this process is you've established the tool that you're going to use. So you've made the decision that you think screening is is something that you want to put into your clinical practice. You've gathered the information, then what happens? So I'm imagining in some scenarios where you've got somebody filling in, the, let's say the OSPRO, and it comes back with lots of yellow flags and lots of information. What on earth do you do with that information? Where do you take it? And equally, I guess we could go from one extreme to the other. The person that gives you lots of information about lots of different psychological factors that you might want to consider versus the person who says, look, everything's fine. Like, why are you asking me these questions? Yeah, this is one of the biggest challenges that I think we encounter from the physical therapists that, that we talk with in practice. I think probably one of the important things here to remember is that, you know, this is not a yes or no decision. It's, it's not so much, do I intervene in a psychologically informed way or do I not? It's really about how much is appropriate. And I kind of use a, a quadriceps strength analogy. If you have a patient who's had you know, an ACL injury and, and you recognize that this person has a, a significant and profound quadriceps strength deficit, you're probably going to spend a lot of time working to improve quadriceps strength. 
as opposed to somebody that doesn't have as much of a deficit, you may work on other things, figuring that as you work on more functional training and, and, and things like that, that the quad strength will improve. There's just not as much of a singular focus on that. And I use that analogy because I think it's similar for psychologically informed treatments. For instance, if you have somebody who has very low levels of distress, that patient may benefit from simply education and uh, a light touch education and a home exercise program, and then they're on their way. They may not require a significant amount of intervention for them to improve because their prognosis is generally good. Contrast that to the high distress patient or somebody that has a, a lot of yellow flag symptoms. For those individuals, you may need to consider things like psychological co-management or co-management with behavioral health specialists, psychological strategies such as aggressive muscle relaxation, guided imagery, mindfulness, pain neurophysiology education. These are things that we've outlined a couple of these different examples or scenarios in the paper. Trevor, in your paper, you've got a three-step model or framework to approaching red flags. And we've talked through the first two steps where you're setting up the screening process and figuring out which tool or tools you're going to use. Then you're doing the screening itself and you're discussing the results and you and the the patient are making that shared decision about what the next steps are. Then step number three, walk us through what happens next. And maybe I'll go back to the quadriceps analogy here is that, you know, you wouldn't just evaluate or assess somebody's impairment initially and then never assess it again. So I think it's the same way with psychological characteristics, yellow flags, is that you want to make sure that things are headed in the right direction. And if you are intervening in a psychologically informed way, you want to make sure that those interventions are in fact addressing those yellow flags over time. So the treatment monitoring piece is really quite important. What we don't understand yet is what the ideal time frame is for treatment monitoring. I think it's important to give yourself and the patient enough time to see some change, but you also don't want to wait so long such that if things aren't headed in the right direction that you don't wait too late. So, you know, the ideal time frame may be somewhere in the range of four to six weeks that you would re-administer your psychological screen to see where patients are and see how they're progressing. But I think that it's really important at that point to reassess and reevaluate if things aren't improving the way that they should be then you may reconsider, should this patient be co-managed with somebody who can provide a little bit more specific behavioral or psychological health interventions, you know, or do they require referral or is, is physical therapy just not the appropriate treatment for them? As we finish up, what are the key messages that you'd like people to take with them into clinical practice tomorrow or the next in the next few days as they head back to the clinic? The point is that it's really designed to complement other types of care that we provide and other things that we address in, in physical therapy. So it's, it's not something that you would be administering or delivering in isolation, but it's really designed to, to, to supplement exercise and manual therapy when indicated or other treatments that may be appropriate for the patient that you're seeing. You know, in my mind, I think that evaluating psychological needs is really the, the best way that we deliver value as physical therapists we don't want to expose everyone to this high level of care because we know that not everybody needs that. 
but identifying when it is warranted and reducing exposure to these interventions when it's not is really one of the most important things I think we can do as physical therapists. But there's really a lot more work to be done in this area. And we've I've talked a little bit about this already. Who benefits from these interventions? Who benefits from screening? Who, you know, which patients are most important to assess? Do we assess everyone that comes through the door or do we only evaluate those patients that may be considered high risk, those with chronic pain? or other conditions um, like multiple comorbidities. And then really when it comes to some of the interventions, and I know that's not the focus of this podcast, but what is the active ingredient? And in that way, we can try to figure out, can we deliver therapies that will improve outcomes without using up so many of our resources that it's unsustainable? And Trevor, you're contributing to and leading to a lot of the important groundbreaking work in the field on that very topic. So I want to say thank you for all of the work that you're doing. And thank you for a very thoughtful walk through assessing screening yellow flags today on JOSPT Insights. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Claire. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.